It was a cool September morning in 1931 in a fashionable office above Grand Central Station. Several men and one female secretary, all Sicilians from the town of Castellamare de Golfo, milled about inside. Probably would have been instantly apparent that these Italians were not legitimate businessmen. Most of the men were clearly bodyguards. Some were obviously more than that. But they all deferred to a tall, aristocratic, 45-year-old Sicilian who held court in the office like a king or a Caesar. His name was Salvatore Maranzano, the boss of all bosses and the most feared man in New York. Suddenly, there was a loud rapping on the door. One of the bodyguards checked the door cautiously. The Sicilians in this office were usually heavily armed, but today they were expecting an IRS raid, and not wanting to catch a firearms charge, they had all left their guns at home. These men had dangerous enemies, however, and they were not just going to let anyone in the office until they could rearm, especially not any strange Italians. The bodyguard was probably relieved that the four men at the door were holding up IRS badges. Plus, they were all pale, light-skinned, clearly not rival Italian wise guys. The IRS had tried to mess with them before, and it always came to nothing. These men didn't fear the federal authorities. However, as the IRS agents swept into the office, things stopped adding up. The supposed government agents pulled out their guns and roughly lined up everyone in the office facing the wall. They didn't have the mild Midwestern accents of most federal agents, and instead talked in the rough dialect of the Lower East Side. In fact, these men weren't IRS agents. They were Jewish gangsters, allegedly led by the murderous Bugsy Siegel, and they didn't give a shit about the Sicilians' declared income. By the time the Sicilians figured out what was going on, it was too late. The Jews knew exactly who they were looking for, and Bugsy and another goon quickly yoked up the aristocratic Maranzano and dragged him into a private office. Bugsy and his men knew that Maranzano hated Jews, they knew he was playing their murders, and they weren't about to give Maranzano an easy death. As his men stood helplessly at gunpoint in the next room, Bugsy and his boys butchered Maranzano with knives while he was still alive, and then finished him off with gunfire. Their contract fulfilled, the Jews strode out of the room, nonchalantly passing the terrified Sicilians. Despite their brutality, Bugsy and his men let all the witnesses live. The old regime was gone, and it was a new world. As long as they stayed with Lucky Luciano, the Jews knew they had nothing to fear. When he was killed in 1931, Salvatore Maranzano had only been in the U.S. for six years, and it had been a wild ride. Maranzano was a devout Catholic, an intellectual, and a true aristocrat of the street. But more than anything else, he was just a dude from Castel de Mare de Golfo. Roughly translated to Fortress by the Sea, Castel de Mare is an ancient, beautiful seaside town that has long been a power center for the Sicilian Mafia. As discussed in previous episodes, the Sicilian Mafia developed in the 18th and 19th centuries from loosely organized bandit clans and peasant self-defense organizations. These groups proliferated in the chaotic, unequal, poor islands. By the time Maranzano was born in 1886, the Mafia groups existed in their current state, with complicated initiation rituals, a strict hierarchy, and very real power over life and death. These Mafia clans held a virtual monopoly on violence in most of the islands, and were paid by landowners, the Catholic Church, and the Italian state to maintain basic security. 
In communities like Castellamare, being initiated into a mafia clan was an honorable and profitable endeavor for a young man. They would be tutored in the professional use of violence, how to intimidate, how to kill with a garrot, knife, and gun, and eventually how to rule. They would also be retaught what most Sicilians already knew, that you could only rely on your family and immediate neighbors, that the only legitimate authority was that of the mafia family, and that you had to have the back of your own people versus outsiders, right or wrong. As a mafia member, or man of honor, they would collect street tax, mediate disputes, and most importantly, war with rival mafia families over vendettas and territorial disputes. Maranzano was born in Castellamare into a large, poor family. Typically for poor Sicilians, seven of his 12 siblings would die in childhood. Despite all this, Maranzano was smart, learning Latin and Greek and studying to be a priest. However, at some point, his intelligence caught the attention of local wise guys, and he was recruited into the local mafia family. His career change notwithstanding, Maranzano would retain an intellectualism, love of Italian literature, and an obsession with ancient Roman history for his whole life. Despite his humble background, Maranzano would convincingly portray himself as an erudite, classically educated mafia prince. Little is known about his criminal career in Sicily, other than that he was successful. By the time Maranzano left Sicily in 1926, he had allegedly earned the high-status title of Don, and was apparently known and trusted by the local boss. As the 19th century turned to the 20th, millions of Southern Italians fled the poverty, lack of opportunity, and mafia violence and headed for the slums of the United States. However, initiated members of mafia clans were usually relatively better off than the average peasant, and as a result had little reason to leave. Thus, New York's Italian-American gangs at the dawn of Prohibition were made up of men like Lucky Luciano and Joe Masseria, men with deep familiarity with the Sicilian Mafia but no actual organizational ties to it. This began to change after World War I, when the Italian central government began cracking down on the Southern lawlessness and tried to impose direct state control at the expense of organized criminal groups. Increasingly imperiled, many mafiosos followed the footsteps of their law-abiding countrymen and left for America. This anti-mafia effort was intensified after Mussolini and his fascists took control in 1922. Mussolini saw the Mafia families as a competitor with the fascist state and declared a brutal war against all Mafia families in Sicily. Needing to leave quickly, many established Sicilian mafiosos made the choice to travel to America. They were aware of the money being made by other Italians there and saw an opportunity to pick up where they left off in cities across America. This ensured that a steady stream of hardened, experienced Italian mafiosos entered the United States throughout the 1920s and 30s, including most notably Maranzano. Maranzano arrived in New York from Sicily in 1925 with the blessings of Sicilian godfathers and a considerable amount of seed money. He also had the contacts of other mobbed-up Castelmarese immigrants from across the United States, contacts he would use to allegedly set up a series of interstate criminal conspiracies. Maranzano was not simply trying to escape the fascists and scrape by. He was trying to get rich. The criminal ecosystem of New York was very different than Maranzano's Sicilian homeland. While Sicily was dominated by static, long-standing mafia families, in New York a myriad of African-American, Jewish, Irish, and various Italian mobs cooperated and warred with each other constantly rising and falling in the anarchic underworld. 
However, despite the differences, Maranzano acted aggressively and successfully to build a powerful, profitable organization. Maranzano had high-quality liquor stills built in upstate New York and Pennsylvania and staffed them with recent Castelmarese immigrants who he could trust. He went about distributing this liquor in Castelmarese immigrant communities, both in New York and throughout the East Coast and Midwest. He also smuggled Castelmarese immigrants into the United States illegally, which both made him money and provided him a constant stream of new soldiers and helpers for his growing enterprise. Though he quickly established himself in the New York underworld, there was a lot about America Maranzano didn't like. First of all was the diversity. Maranzano, like many Catholics of his generation, was famously very anti-Semitic, but that was just scratching the surface of his intolerance. Beyond hating Jews and feeling almost as negatively about Irish people, Maranzano deeply distrusted non-Sicilian Italians generally and refused to work with the Calabrian, Neapolitan, and other Italian street guys who integrated pretty seamlessly in other Sicilian-dominated gangs. Maranzano's education did not lead to a general tolerance or interest in other cultures, but rather convinced him of the superiority of his people and way of life and the inferiority of other groups, even other Italians. Even within the Sicilian community, Maranzano strongly preferred working with other Castelmarese people and only worked with other Sicilians when he had to. Beyond the general diversity of New York, Maranzano found the established Sicilian groups lacking. Joe the Boss Masseria was the most powerful Sicilian gangster in the mid-20s and was greedily demanding fealty and tribute from an expanding group of Italian gangs. By 1928, the death of Jewish criminal mastermind Arnold Rothstein meant that Masseria's group was almost unchallenged as the most powerful mob in New York. On the surface, Masseria and Maranzano and their organization shared some characteristics. Both organizations were based on the old country Sicilian mafia groups, with their initiation rituals, strict hierarchies, and inability to do business with non-Italians. Furthermore, both Masseria and Maranzano were eager to be seen as lordly godfathers by their men. However, in actuality, Masseria was a poor imitation of what Maranzano truly was. While Masseria was eager to be seen as a sophisticated, aristocratic godfather, he had no real ties of any kind to authentic Sicilian mafia families and had never been vetted or trained by them, and was basically making everything up as he went along without any genuine connection to the old tradition. Beyond this, Masseria was a barely literate slob who impressed people with his capacity for violence, but lacked the fatherly wisdom and charisma that defined successful old country bosses. Maranzano, on the other hand, was the real deal. He came to America as a high-ranking, made member of a mafia family, and had the funds, respect, and criminal training to go with it. Furthermore, Maranzano had trained as a priest, and this counterintuitively helped him lead his criminal gang. He often addressed his men like he was giving a sermon, in a deep and engaging voice, emphasizing the importance of honor, bravery, and ancient tradition, as well as pure profit and greed. He leaned in hard to the idea that mafiosos were honorable warriors from another age rather than simple street thugs. A Maranzano underling and future Cosa Nostra leader, Joe Bonanno, remembered the night before a street battle watching Maranzano prepare his weapons with a solemn, priestly reverence. Bonanno later said, He performed the loading of the shotgun shells as if it were a sacred ritual. Maranzano was extremely well-read 
and lectured his underlings at length about important Italian historical figures, especially Julius Caesar. As time went on, he increasingly compared his gang to a conquering Roman legion, and himself to Julius Caesar. This combination of real mafia connections, personal charisma, and an ideology that saw the mafia as a proud institution that embodied ancient, honorable Sicilian values was widely successful. And very soon, Maranzano became the head of a Castelmarese organization that rivaled Masarias. With both men expanding, arrogant, and violent, conflict between Masaria and Maranzano was inevitable. And in 1930, Masaria reached out to Castelmarese gangsters demanding that they bend the knee and pay him $10,000 in street tax. Maranzano was apoplectic that this gluttonous, illiterate Gavone with no real mafia connections was trying to shake him down. And the rest of the Castelmarese shot callers across the United States felt the same. The Castelmarese were not going to be extorted. Joe the boss Masaria reacted the way he always did, with thuggish violence. Initially, the action was limited to low-level gang members murdering and assaulting each other and hijacking each other's liquors convoys in a tit-for-tat fashion. However, the violence began to affect high-ranking guys inside and outside New York. In May 1930, Masaria men killed Gaspari Milazzo, a highly respected Castelmarese gang leader in Detroit, which really kicked things into overdrive. Maranzano and the Castelmarese struck back and in a series of well-planned hits liquidated many of Masaria's top lieutenants. Masaria had a lifetime of experience in New York, but Maranzano was a more impressive, better man. This, along with Maranzano's real mafia training and his old country connections, meant by the winter of 1930, Joe the boss Masaria was losing. Both Masaria and Maranzano were forced to travel in armored limousines with armies of bodyguards. Maranzano, for his part, never left his house without two high-powered handguns and a dagger. Plus, he had the backseat of his car equipped with a swivel-mounted heavy machine gun that sat between his legs. It's unknown how many people die in this conflict, but it was at least dozens and possibly considerably more. Both gangs had extensive geographic reach and bodies were dropping across the country, but most of the violence took place in New York. As the violence escalated, every Italian street guy was forced to take a side, and the normally complacent police force began cracking down on Italian racketeers regardless of affiliation. Both these things were very bad for childhood friends and rising Lower East Side gangsters Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. Through Lucky, their gang was loosely allied with the Glutton Masarias organization, but they were independent enough to largely stay out of the violence. In any case, the alliance between their gang and Masaria was based off convenience, not love or respect. The Jewish Meyer and the anti-Semitic Masaria personally hated each other and had hijacked each other's convoys and murdered each other's henchmen in the past. Lucky was the glue that held Meyer and Masaria together, and he was getting sick of Masaria. By this time, Lucky had completely adopted Arnold Rothstein's cooperative business philosophy, and he was pushing Masaria to make peace with Maranzano and enter into agreements with other Jewish and Irish groups to stop the liquor wars and run things like rational businessmen not thuggish extortionists. Lucky was smart enough to know that wars were bad for business, and in any case, he was sick of constantly looking over his shoulder. Unfortunately, Masaria was not rational, and money wasn't enough for him. He was motivated above all by a desire to be a universally feared street king, and was unmoved by Lucky's arguments. 
As far as Masseria was concerned, liquidating Maranzano and his Castelmarese was necessary to maintain his honor and worth any price. As for working with Christ-killing Jews or barbaric Irish on equal terms, that was simply out of the question. At first, Meyer and Lucky were happy for the old-school Sicilians to fight it out. Their group was strong enough that Masseria couldn't force them to join in on the fighting, and Maranzano knew to stay out of the Lower East Side. However, by early 1931, things had gone too far. Police were cracking down on Meyer and Lucky's business as part of the wider sweep caused by the war, and it was increasingly impossible to stay neutral without attracting violence from both sides. While Lucky was associated with Masseria, everyone knew Masseria had started the war by trying to extort Maranzano, and even though Masseria was losing, he stubbornly and arrogantly refused to talk peace. In March 1931, Maranzano secretly reached out to Luciano. In a top-secret sit-down in Brooklyn, Maranzano allegedly made a proposition to the younger gangster. Maranzano said that he knew war was bad for business and did not come to America to fight endless street battles. He reminded Lucky that Masseria started the conflict, and so far, all of the Castelmarese violence was in response to this. Finally, Maranzano told Lucky that he solely blamed Masseria for the war, not Masseria's underlings or allies. Masseria could be taken care of, Marzano promised. Not only would he forgive Ma- Masseria's allies, he would also leave them in peace and not try and extort a cut of their profits like Masseria had. Lucky was probably contemplating moving on Masseria for a while. Even before the war, Masseria's greed, bigotry, and undeniable stupidity bothered Lucky. And now his obstinate refusal to negotiate was costing everyone blood and gold. Maranzano was still a bigoted, sanctimonious, mustache Pete, but he was an improvement over the illiterate Masseria. At the end of the secret meeting in Brooklyn, Maranzano asked Lucky if he knew what had to be done. When Lucky solemnly nodded, Maranzano responded, Good. I look forward to a peaceful Easter. A month later, in April 1931, Lucky called a meeting with Masseria at a lavish Italian seafood restaurant in Coney Island, Brooklyn, called Novo Via, ostensibly to discuss killing Maranzano. Joe the boss Masseria got out of his bulletproof limousine flanked by three intimidating bodyguards. Masseria was likely excited. Whatever he thought of Lucky and his Jewish friends, they had to be one of the strongest, most murderous crews in New York, and he needed all the help he could get. Anyways, Masseria was known for his massive appetite, and Novo Via was one of his favorite restaurants. He met Luciano at a table in the back of the restaurant, and as was his practice, ordered prodigiously, polishing off spaghetti with red clam sauce and lobster with some Tuscan red wine. Lucky was pleasant, but hardly touched his food. Around an hour in, Lucky excused himself to use the bathroom. Then, it happened. Masseria's bodyguards stood aside as a four-man hit team, allegedly led by Bugsy Siegel, walked into the restaurant with guns drawn. Unarmed, full of food, and surrounded by enemies he thought were friends, Masseria knew he was through. Three bullets ripped through Masseria's back, and then two more hit him above the neck. A job well done, Lucky and his hit team calmly left the restaurant and got into a waiting car. The murder would never be solved. The Castelmarese war was over, but the violence wasn't. While Lucky and his Jewish friends had been willing to cooperate with Maranzano against Masseria, they were not about to bend the knee to him or anyone else. Shortly after the killing, Lucky sent a message to Maranzano through a mutual associate. 
Tell your compadre, Maranzano, we have killed Masaria, not to serve him, but for our own personal reasons. Tell him besides that, if he should even touch a hair, even on a personal enemy of ours, we will wage war to the end. Lucky and Meyer had always hated Joe the Boss Masaria's dictatorial pretensions. Not only did they not want to pay up, they also recognized that the criminal world was not well suited to monarchies. The diverse gangs and mobs of New York would never peacefully allow one man to run everything, and becoming boss of all bosses would be impossible without unleashing a river of blood. Lucky and Meyer didn't even want the crown for themselves, as they knew that anyone who achieved total dominance would be a constant target for assassination and law enforcement. Instead, Meyer and Lucky advocated a sort of United Nations for the gangs of New York, a covert system where all the major mob leaders of all ethnicities across New York and beyond would recognize each other and form a secret council to negotiate turf and territory, cooperate on business, and most of all, mediate disputes peacefully. Instead of anarchy or despotism, the two boys from the Lower East wanted to form an institution to reduce the violence and chaos. At first, it seemed like Maranzano would play along, and together with Lucky and other Italian gang leaders, back the formation of a revolutionary organizational system for Italian organized crime. The resulting organization would have hallmarks of both Maranzano's obsession with ceremony, chain of command, and Sicilian tradition, and Lucky's emphasis on cooperation and mediation that he had learned from deceased Jewish kingpin Arnold Rothstein. While Lucky and Meyer Lansky would nurture the organization over the next half century by modeling and enforcing cooperative, collaborative norms, the actual institutions and official rules largely come from Maranzano and his obsession with Italianness and militaristic chain of command. Under the new system, Italian criminals would be separated into five clans, or borgadas, one led by Maranzano, another led by Lucky, and the rest led by other high-ranking Italian gangsters. These leaders would negotiate with each other to mediate disputes and be assisted in running their families by an official advisor or consigliere, and would give orders to low-level soldiers through a complicated chain of command. Most importantly, recognized members of these families would be prohibited on pain of death from interfering in the business of other families without the approval of the bosses. Membership in a borgata would be limited to Italians, but non-Italian groups, along with gangs from Chicago and elsewhere, were encouraged to work with the five borgatas in order to bring further order to the streets. This new Italian cartel would not call themselves the Mafia, and generally refused to utter the word, but rather went by the unassuming Cosa Nostra, or Our Thing. Under the guidance of Lucky, Meyer, and Maranzano, the five families of New York, the American Mafia, La Cosa Nostra, that criminal juggernaut that would run New York and much of America for the next two generations had been created. But unfortunately, this development would not lead to peace. Not yet. While Lucky and Maranzano both enthusiastically backed the creation of the five-family system, they had profoundly different aims. Lucky and Meyer saw a consensus-based system of mediation as an alternative to having a boss of all bosses and all the violence that would entail. Maranzano, on the other hand, saw the five families as a vehicle for him to seize total control, and from day one he did not want to be an equal with the other godfathers. He wanted to be their leader. Shortly after Masseria's murder, Maranzano held a high-profile meeting of all his Castelmarese gang members, around 500 in all, in a convention hall in the Bronx. Flanked by Catholic icons and a huge ornate crucifix, 
Maranzano gave a particularly rousing speech and declared himself capo di tutti capi, boss of all bosses. A month later, he held an ostentatious party at the same restaurant that Masseria was murdered in, lording over the event in full view of his rivals and law enforcement, like an old country mafia chieftain. Before the war with Masseria, Maranzano wanted to keep his Castelmarisi separate from the other Sicilian gangs he saw as inferior. Now that he was victorious, he no longer wanted separation for his superior group. He wanted to dominate. Privately, he was comparing himself to his idol, Julius Caesar, who, like him, had a dangerous ambition and disregard for power sharing. Lucky and Meyer watched all this with trepidation. Beyond showcasing a stabilizing thirst for power, Maranzano's cultural background and social values put him at odds with our boys and their generation of Americanized, relatively forward-thinking gangsters. Lucky's criminal network included not only Jews, but Irish and other diverse members. Maranzano was used to only dealing with people from his hometown and looked down on anyone who didn't share his xenophobic views. Things really came to a head at a high-level gang summit when Maranzano and Lucky went to Chicago to no- negotiate with Chicago gang lord Al Capone. Lucky wanted Meyer Lancy to come along, and Maranzano flatly refused to allow a Jew to accompany him. After extensive arguments, Maranzano finally relented on letting Meyer come to Chicago, but balked at letting the Jew sit in on a meeting that he thought was only open to Italians. This enraged Lucky. Meyer was not only his 50-50 partner and close friend, he also had an amazing ability to remember numbers and do complicated math on the spot. Not letting him into the meeting was not only disrespectful, it was also stupid. By summer of 1931, Maranzano was telling Lucky to cease doing business, not only with Jews and Irish, but even with non-Sicilian Italians, who he referred to as dirty Calabrians. Meyer and Lucky were in quite a bind. They had whacked Masseria for being a power-mad bigot, and now they were stuck with an even more power-mad, bigoted Maranzano, who was backed by his dangerous Castelmarisi organization. By the late summer of 1931, trust between Lucky and Maranzano had completely broken down, and Lucky refused to meet Maranzano without a phalanx of heavily armed bodyguards. This caution was warranted, because at this point Maranzano was already plotting the murder of most of the high-ranking Jewish and younger Italian gangsters across America. I can't get along with those guys, he said of the younger mobsters. We have to get rid of them before we can control anything. The hit list was long. Maranzano wanted to whack Al Capone along with half a dozen of the most powerful gangsters in America. But Lucky and Meyer were on top of the list, and Maranzano had already contacted a group of Irish thugs to kill them. Maranzano, that Julius Caesar of the streets, had crossed the Rubicon. The Castelmarese War had pitted Italian-Americans against each other based on region of origin, but this obscured a deeper, more fundamental conflict between the older Sicilian-raised mafiosos of Maranzano's generation on the one hand, and the younger, American-raised mobsters like Lucky and Meyer on the other. There were younger members of Maranzano's organization who related more to Meyer and Lucky. These younger guys may have traced their roots to Castelmari, but they grew up like Lucky and Meyer in the slums of America. Like Meyer and Lucky, they mainly spoke English, had diverse groups of friends and associates, and were motivated by profit more than abstract notions of honor. One of these younger Castamarisi soldiers was a guy named Tommy Lucchesi. Lucchesi not only agreed with and respected Lucky and Meyer, but was also personally friendly with them, knowing them since their teenage gang days. When Lucchese heard of the plot on Meyer and Lucky's life, 
he chose his old friends over his boss. He warned Meyer and Lucky, who were already planning for such an eventuality. As Meyer said years later, they were so honorable that no one in the mafia ever trusted anyone else. Meyer and Lucky allegedly wasted no time calling up their go-to hitman, Bugsy Siegel, and told him to gather up a crew of killers. Bugsy had no time for pretentious anti-Semites like Maranzano and was happy to do it. Lucky, Meyer, and Bugsy also learned from Lucchese that Maranzano was expecting his office to be raided by the feds, and thus his bodyguards were temporarily unarmed. Posing as IRS agents, Bugsy and three other killers allegedly got entrance to Maranzano's office, easily subdued his unarmed bodyguards. The Jewish hetman then bundled the imperious Maranzano into his private office. As discussed in the intro, the hitman knew Maranzano hated Jews, and they knew he was planning on murdering them all, despite their support against Masseria. They were understandably angry. When they got him alone, Bugsy and his boys brutally slashed Maranzano with knives and finished him off with a hail of bullets. Maranzano had spent his whole life emulating Julius Caesar, and now he died like his idol. Betrayed by his protege and struck down by merciless assassins at the height of his power for the sin of excessive pride. The violence of the 1920s had claimed the lives of all the old bosses of New York. Throughout all the bloodshed and betrayal, Meyer and Lucky stayed loyal to each other and stayed alive. Now, barely in their 30s, the two boys from the Lower East Side found themselves on top of the scrap heap. However, they had learned from the successes and failures of the bosses that came before them. And despite their young age, they had the wisdom Masseria and Maranzano never had. Lucky and Meyer were not going to flame out in a mad power grab. Instead, they were trying to create something lasting. Maybe make some money and survive into old age while they were at it. After Masseria had been murdered, Maranzano held a series of public parties and secret meetings indicating his desire for control. After Maranzano's murder, Lucky Luciano took a very different tact. In the first week, Lucky let his fellow godfathers know that his people murdered Maranzano. Killing another boss was normally forbidden, but Lucky had the testimony of younger Castelmarisi that this murder was clearly in self-defense, and the other mobsters, including Castelmarisi, accepted this. Then, before the year was over, Lucky called a massive gang summit in Chicago. Had Lucky declared himself boss of all bosses, he probably would have had broad support. He had learned that kings often had short lives in New York City. This was not going to be a coronation. Rather, Lucky referred to it as a committee of peace, not a power grab, but an instrument to bring some order to the criminal world. During the meeting, Lucky allegedly stated that the five families and their rules should remain like they were before Maranzano's death. There would be no retribution against the Castelmarisi members, and they would be allowed to run their own affairs. Vitally, though, Lucky insisted that there should be no boss of all bosses. Instead, he advocated setting up a secret but formal council known as the Commission to settle disputes and make policy. This commission would not just be open to members of the five families, but would also be a venue for powerful Jews, Irish, and out-of-town Italians to negotiate. The commission, not a single man, would be sovereign, and if one family went against the commission's rules, all the other families would unite and bring them to heel. The 1931 elevation of an institution rather than a man, a commission rather than a boss of all bosses, was the genius of La Cosa Nostra. 
Lucky, advised by Meyer Lansky and influenced by Arl Rothstein, was not trying to crudely dominate. He was trying to create something lasting. The plan worked, and while violence was central to the business of La Cosa Nostra, over the next two generations, major conflict was rare, and there was never a return to the outrageous bloodshed of the Castamarese War. Lucky and Meyer were at the top of their games. Their gang was now the first among equals in a crime syndicate that was bigger than U.S. Steel. They were multimillionaires, and they were physically safer than they had been in their entire lives. However, prohibition was almost over, and the depression was about to hit. The scramble to replace the lost alcohol profits would lead to one last spasm of violence. The Dirty Thirties were here.